Warning. Due to violent and disturbing content, listener discretion is advised. What's up, creeps? Thanks for tuning in to episode six of Seeing Red. Last time we fed your brain about Joe Ball, the alligator man. But tonight we're going to go get all stabby with the highway killer. Before that, just a quick reminder, we only have four episodes left of this one before we take a brief summer break to adventure, work on more cases, and you know, get shit together. So make sure you tell all your creepy little friends about us and catch the fuck up on all these episodes. We've had a ton of good feedback, so let's keep it going. Enough of that. So let's cuddle up and talk about murder. Where are we headed today, sweet bitch? (laughs) Uh, We're actually all over the place today, but we're going to start out in Crawfordsville, Indiana on December 21st, 1952 where one Larry Eiler was the youngest of four children. Uh, Their dad was an alcoholic who verbally and physically abused his family because he was a stand-up guy that way. Um, At some point, his parents divorced when he was young, and him and his siblings were bounced around between his mother and babysitters and foster care and basically everyone. When he was 10, his mom put him in a home for unruly boys. And when he was there, he had a psych evaluation that stated he was of average intelligence, but was severely insecure and had a fear of abandonment. Uh, Within months, though, he returned back to his mother's home. I mean, I wonder why he had these abandonment issues. For fuck's sakes. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, so at some point during puberty, he began to realize that he was kind of attracted to men. And this repelled him because in that day and age, everyone thought being gay was super frowned upon and obviously religious people were not about it. So he dated some girls on occasion and he did it to hide his homosexuality or he did an attempt to try and be air quotations normal for outward appearances and none of those relationships were ever physical so i mean i don't think it's that uncommon for gay people in their youth to try and date opposite genders to cover it up while they're figuring their shit out yeah i i, I think we both know people who have done that it's very scary to come out as gay especially in a society where that makes you abnormal or a a freak so to speak so i don't i'm not gonna hold that one against him 
Oh, yeah, especially because, like, nowadays, like, everything's becoming more mainstream, but I'm only turning 28, and I know people in high school that did the same thing, because even when I was in high school, it was still a hush-hush thing at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, nobody wants to invite more bullying. You get bullied enough in high school, so it's normal oh, yeah. to avoid that. Yeah. <laughs> especially in small-ass towns where everyone's judging you. Like, you don't want that bullshit. Yeah. So he did end up dropping out of high school in his senior year. Um, He worked a few jobs and did get his GED. He enrolled multiple times at college, but he never ended up with a degree in anything. Um, And he decides at some point to move to Illinois for a fresh start. Uh, While he was there, he got to know the gay scene pretty well. And he'd have lots of one-night stands with guys, just have hookups and stuff like that. A few of these guys, though, reported that he wouldn't look at them during sex and would call them whores or bitches while they were banging it out. And some people seem to think that that made Eiler feel like he was having sex with a woman. Um, I'm going to question that. Uh, Eventually, Eiler became a leather daddy. So what that essentially means is he was into the BDSM scene and he liked to be the one in control. And a lot of his partners said that he had very violent nature when put into those sexual situations. And some even claim that he liked cutting during these encounters. Ho ho. So let's talk about BDSM. Um, For those of you who don't know what BDSM is, um, it actually stands for bondage and discipline, sadism and masochism. Um, This is a form of play where consenting people engage in a more taboo type of sexual activity. Um, I'm into Um, (laughs) (laughs) We're into it. Tell Um, me more. Tell me more. Um, it can involve inflicting or receiving pain or retaining, um, pain Rest- retaining or <laughs> humiliation. Stra- um, restraining, like they like being tied up. They, we, some of yeah, us. Yeah, they do. Yeah. <laughs> Most people who engage in this kind of activity are healthy and stable and they're well adjusted and they have safe words and everything is super safe. Those are people that practice safe BDSM. Do not choke people improperly in 2020. (laughs) Um, Google that shit before you do it. Yeah. Make sure you have everything figured out and you are practicing safe sex practices. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, But I think maybe Eiler probably used this as an outlet, though. I think maybe he enjoyed hurting men because they were the object of his desire. So maybe his BDSM wasn't the same as maybe the rest of us. It wasn't like a fun kink for him, but more of a, I want to destroy the thing I love. Not, you know, love emotionally, but sexually. Oh, yeah. I mean, I don't think he was that knowledgeable of anything at the time and was just like i'm in charge i'm gonna probably beat the shit out of you and use you and then we're done (laughs) yeah and as far as him calling his partners names um i think that was probably just a way to humiliate them not feminize them i think that's a really uh juvenile way to interpret it i i think he just enjoyed you know shaming them he got off on that Because he's a little weirdo. Just kidding. But (laughs) 
Okay, so in 1978, while he was in Terry Hout, I think that's how you pronounce Tara it. Um, Tara Hoot. Tara Hoot. Okay. Tyler actually picks up a 19-year-old hitchhiker named Craig Long. And apparently he propositioned him and he wasn't having it and he tried to leave his car. So Eiler puts a knife to his chest and drove him out to a rural field and ordered him to undress and then handcuffs him in the back seat. While he was undressing, Long actually runs the fuck away and Eiler chases him down and stabs him in the chest. Um, Long pretended to be dead and Eiler took off and he actually made his way to a local house and got help from paramedics. Um, Eiler actually rolls up and offers the keys to the handcuffs and turns himself in because this poor boy is still locked in, I'm assuming not dollar store cuffs where you can just click the little button and let yourself go. Not that you'd um, know anything about that, Becca. <laughs> yeah, no. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> the search of his car actually revealed that he had a giant hunting knife, a metal tipped whip, a butcher knife, a sword, and some tear gas, which that's some next fuck- level weird shit who carries around a sword <laughs> yeah right is he larping like <laughs> yeah right i only want a wooden one okay <laughs> so he was actually charged with aggravated assault and pleads guilty but he was released on bail and basically paid long off like to not press charges against him so he changed his plea to not guilty and was then released okay so laws were so fucky back then um, agreed yeah the fact that he could you know he, the you know long is like hey i'm not going to press charges and the law was like okay sounds good like it doesn't work that way anymore but back in the day that's that's how people got away with shit all the time that's how all these men got away with beating their wives and stuff because wives wouldn't press charges so the husbands or boyfriends never got in trouble for it um but somewhere along the way there was kind of like a loophole which is what they do now where the victim doesn't have to press charges um the police can actually press charges if they are privy to what happened so that's like the new way of things but back then you can stab somebody in the chest and they could be like oh that's cool and be free be free <laughs> that's that go go be free to stab some more yeah, I think that's bullshit. Because every time, ugh, every time more shit happens, fucking... I'm glad they created that, honestly, but they should have done it a lot earlier. Like, there's clear examples in different cases we've read where, like, they let everybody go and then more shit happens. And it's like, you let them out. Yeah. So in 1981, Eiler acquires a boyfriend of sorts. So he hooks up with this married guy named John. John has two kids and three foster kids and a wife. And John's wife, I guess, tolerated her husband's male partners and even let Eiler live with them at, at on occasion, which is weird. So John was into the BDSM lifestyle too, and Eiler was definitely the top or dominant partner in their sexual relationship. Not sure how that rolled over to their, like, personal relationship. I don't know. But um, at this point, Eiler started becoming much more comfortable with being gay and completely considered John to be his boyfriend. 
Um, though his other like promiscuous lifestyle stayed the same. Yeah, if I was the wife, I'd be like, mm, no. <laughs> I it's just weird on so many different levels and i i think it's the kids that fuck me up like okay your husband's clearly bisexual and if you want to allow him to have other partners and you're down with that that's cool but like you're letting your husband's boyfriend move in with you and your five ass children and i don't know do they have like a dungeon in, in the basement like do the kids do kids ask why there's like a dog bowl with their daddy's name on it in the basement? Stop. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's the whole thing. Like, I get, well, I mean, I don't know how everything was like in that time period. Like, was it still like, it was still, I'm assuming, like, sort of frowned upon, but yet you're going to move another dude like into your house with your children and like, were they all sleeping together? Was it just those two? Like, were, like, how was the dynamics of their marriage and everything? Like, I wish we, like, had some insight on that, but I couldn't find anything. Well, I doubt but... Eiler was sleeping with the wife. Eiler seems like he had no interest mm-hmm. in women at all. Um, and it was, like, the 80s, so things were, I feel things were just coming into being a little more accepting as far as the LGBT community. Uh, I mean, it it wasn't like, you know, we're queer and we're here and all that, but (laughs) people were, especially in big cities, were becoming a little more accepting of it. Mm -hmm. I hate the idea of Eiler being their poster boy, but... Oh, yeah, for sure. Okay, so four years after he attacks Craig Long, on March 22nd, 1982... Jay Reynolds was found stabbed to death on the outskirts of Lexington, Kentucky. And then nine months later, on October 3rd, um, 14-year-old Delvoid Baker was strangled and his body was dumped on a roadside north of Indianapolis. Stephen Crockett, who was 19, was found on October 23rd and an estimated 12 hours after his body was beaten and stabbed 32 times with four stab wounds in his head. Um, The killer moved on to Illinois because on November 6th, Robert Foley was actually found in a field northwest of Joliet. Did you say Illinois? What? (laughs) Is that not the word? It's Illinois. That's what I said. You said Illinois. Keep it in. Do not edit it. Do not delete it, Steven. I'm being friggin' bullied here. (laughs) Okay. Um, And just for the record here, there are conflicting reports and confessions um, for the public record or whatever on who these victims actually were. Yeah, it was hard for me to kind of piece together the victim list or even the order that some of them were killed in. So if we're inaccurate at that, um, please send hate mail to Rebecca in Arizona. (laughs) I was just shamed for saying Illinois, so (laughs) I don't want to hear anything. No fan mail. (laughs) All right. So the police started picking up on the, this pattern of the victims and, um, how they were being murdered 
And a survivor of Eilers was drugged and beaten near Lowell on November 4th. Um, and this guy was 21-year-old Craig Townsend. Um, and he was, like, left in a field. He was then taken to a hospital and treated for exposure and obvious injuries. But he kind of, like, deuced out of the hospital before he could be interviewed. He deuced out of there. He did. Now, I think... Keep going. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, Craig could have taken off for, like, any number of reasons. Like, I was thinking about it. Like, maybe uh, maybe he was gay or bisexual, and that's, like, why he got into the car with Eiler in the first place, but he didn't want anybody to know or, you know, know that he was gay or bi. Um, or maybe he was a prostitute and he was afraid he was going to be arrested. Or maybe he was just afraid. Like, I'm not throwing shade on Craig for taking off. Like, it was a different time. I'm glad you I wouldn't blame him Craig. either after that shit, though. Like... Mm -hmm. I wouldn't want to bring that repressed shit up. No. And he's still out there. Like, what the fuck? Yeah. Okay. So on Christmas in 1983, 25-year-old John Johnson's body was dumped in a field outside Belshaw. Three days later, he committed two different murders on the same day. 21-year-old John Roach, who had multiple stab wounds in his chest, stomach, and throat, and Stephen Agin. Stephen was suspected to have been murdered in an outbuilding near an abandoned farm where traces of human flesh had actually been found on the walls. Police speculated that he had been suspended by the wall as his killer inflicted his wounds. There had been extensive damage to his abdomen, chest, and his throat. And I'm just gonna say it. Two people in a day is a little fucking greedy here. <laughs> Take a step back, Larry. <laughs> yeah what the fuck and i wonder why it was two in one day um because i don't think we know which one of them died first that day right um no i couldn't find like the order like in my books and online like it stated who was first yeah, I I wonder if something happened with the first victim that he didn't reach his sexual gratification for whatever reason. And then maybe if Steven was the second victim that day, maybe that's why it got so much more intense with suspending him on a wall and stuff. Yeah, like maybe like something really pissed him off and he was just like, I'm fucking angry. Yeah, maybe he was mad at his boyfriend's kids for like drinking the last of the milk or something that day yeah fuck <laughs> but the body count kept rising and in the spring of 1983 um most of the action shifted to illinois uh by july 2nd the body count was at 12 but most of the victims were being mutilated after death and even a few of them were disemboweled a man named ralph Calice became victim number 13 on August 31st, and he was dumped in a field near Lake Forest, Illinois. Uh, this was another one where he was found dead less than 12 hours after he had been murdered. He'd been bound with a clothesline and surgical tape and stabbed 17 times, and his pants were around his ankles. <sighs> I mean, I guess it's good that they were mutilated after 
they were killed. Like, that's some kind of solace. I hope so, because I sure as fuck would rather just be like, dude, just slip my throat, take me out, won't feel it, do whatever else the fuck you want. Yeah, do whatever you want after I'm dead. But, mm-hmm. So at least they weren't too tortured. Though I find it hard to believe that he wouldn't inflict some type of torture on them before they died. Yeah. Yeah, because that was kind of his, that's kind of his move. Get his jollies off. Yeah. Okay, so on January 24th, 1983, Eiler abducts a 16-year-old named Irvin Gibson. Irvin's body was found months later on top of a dog who had also been stabbed to death. Between March and April, Eiler killed at least five more men, including 21-year-old Scott McNeve. Scott was stabbed multiple times in the back, neck, and abdomen so severely that part of his intestines were actually protruding out of his body. There were also welts on Scott's arms and ankles suggesting that he had been tied up. Also, what the fuck? Why'd you have to kill the dog, Larry? I I was waiting for it. I knew it was coming. (laughs) You know I love all animals, and I love humans too, but like, was he out walking his dog and he was like, I'm gonna fucking murder this guy and fuck your dog too? (laughs) Maybe. Not like physically fuck the dog, just for clarification. As far as we know, he wasn't into that, but no promises. Yeah. Uh, well, March 30th of 83, Indiana Highway Patrolman spotted a truck parked along Interstate 65. And he seen two men headed towards a nearby, they're like this nearby wooded area. Um, And one of the guys looked like he was bound and the officer went down to see what was going on with that. And so he identified Eiler as the guy who owned the truck and the guy who was bound accused Eiler of making a sexual proposition before asking to tie him up. Um, They ended up searching Eiler's truck and they found surgical tape, nylon, clothesline, and a hunting knife stained with human blood. Uh, the type of blood on the knife was later matched to the that previous victim, Ralph Calise. And tire prints from his truck and boot prints matched ones found in other crime scenes. So police detained him, but let him the fuck go on the grounds that the search warrant was, or the search of his truck was ruled illegal. Bitch, like, what? Seriously. Like, okay. I understand the law, and you cannot search somebody's vehicle without a warrant unless something is in plain sight or plain smell. That's a new thing. So if they, like, smell weed in your car, they're allowed to search it. But, like, none of this shit was... None of this shit was in plain sight. Like, obviously, Eiler didn't have a bloody hunting knife on his seat. Otherwise, you know, his victim wouldn't have gotten into the car. So, okay, I get it. The search for his truck was illegal. But wasn't he still, like, leading some guy into the woods, like, tied up? Like... Yeah, what the hell? Yeah, like, okay, this other stuff can't be used in, you know, Ralph's trial or any of the other trials. But you can still detain him on the fact that he was essentially kidnapping some dude and taking him into the woods. Yeah, but I don't understand how it's so, like, it's not all figured out to, like, catch these people. Like, it's just, like, mind-boggling to me. 
Maybe it was just another one of those cases where cops didn't want to get involved in a, you know, a gay altercation or whatever. That was big back in the day where cops would rather just not. Like discrimination? Yeah, yeah. Like it happened with with Dahmer. Like Uh Dahmer was like, oh, he's my boyfriend. And they're like, okay, we don't want to get involved. Have a nice day, gents look what happened then yeah well lucky for this guy though the cops happened by this day because he was probably on his way to be taken out so oh yeah lucky on him okay so after being set free his rampage continues without a hitch on october 4th 1983 14 year old Derek hansen was found dismembered in kenosha wisconsin 11 days later, a young John Doe was discovered near Rensselaer, Indiana. And on October 18th, four more bodies in Newton County are found, dumped all together at an abandoned farm. One victim was decapitated and all of the men's pants were down, giving sexual motive in the killings. On December 5th, another John Doe was found. And two days later, Richard Wayne and an unidentified man were found near Indianapolis. So... I'm assuming there was a giant gangbang going on. I mean, well, they found all, like, they, I guess those four bodies they found at the farm. There's no way of telling. Like, I doubt he took out four guys all at once. So probably not oh, a gangbang. Yeah. Probably just a convenient dump site. Oh, but yeah. It's, yeah, it's interesting that he only chose this one place for four bodies and all these other people were discarded somewhere else not discarded they're not trash i'm sure they were very lovely young men Um, yeah i agree yeah and obviously like um not obviously but according to medical examinations and all that like none of these men had been raped in the traditional sense like there was no penetration or anything but i thought i think it's still obvious with their pants being down that there was that sexual motivation to the crime he was definitely a lust murderer um you know he probably stripped these guys down and you know one it was you know humiliating for for them or maybe he was just admiring the beautiful male form but i you know i'm willing to bet that there were other forms of sexual force maybe it was orally or manually i'm sure he got these men to do things to him that would not show up on an autopsy later and you know just fuck him (laughs) Yeah, just fuck him. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's crazy to me because it's like you have four bodies dumped in one place and none of them he had sex with. So it's like, okay, is he just getting like greedy now? Is he like just letting out his anger? And he's like, oh, I get off when I just like get all this adrenaline and attack and kill these men. Yeah. I wonder how many of these guys were he, you know, was he murdering while he was still with his boyfriend? Oh, yeah. I wonder if he had any friggin' inkling that he was doing this shit on the side. Yeah. Especially when he has kids. Can you imagine finding out all this shit and being like, the wife had to be like, you brought this motherfucker into our home with our children? Yeah. 
So they begin to focus their entire investigation on Eiler and trace his first living victim to Chicago, that guy that fled the hospital. And in Chicago, he identifies pictures of Eiler as the guy who drugged him and attacked him and all that. Uh, another man who was a victim of Eiler's chimed in with a similar story against him, but the police had only circumstantial evidence and wanted him charged with murder, so they needed to, like, build a better case against him. Yeah, get that motherfucker. <laughs> okay. So he was facing constant surveillance in Chicago, so Eiler files a civil lawsuit against the Lake County Sheriff's Office claiming that the police were using, air quotation, psychological warfare campaign (laughs) to make him come unhinged, which, I mean, bitch, you're already unhinged. Right. But his claim for half a million dollars was dismissed, and as he went to leave the courtroom, he was arrested for the murder of Ralph Calise and held on a million dollar bond. At a um, pre-trial hearing on February 5th, 1984, it led to the exclusion of some of the evidence they had taken from Larry's truck, and he was released on bail and went back to his business while police were scrambling to get more evidence against him. The caucasity of this bitch. (laughs) (laughs) Like, oh no, they're harassing me because I stab men and they become suspicious. Yeah, like, what the fuck? The police have some nerve, you know, stalking this <laughs> upstanding citizen. I'm becoming unhinged. <laughs> yeah, I need a million dollars to... <laughs> Could you imagine? <laughs> oh, yeah, we're just gonna give you a fucking million dollars because we've been fucking stalking you. For yeah. you killing innocent gays in the area. Yeah. All right, so then on May 7th of 84, a 22-year-old man named David Block was found murdered, and all of his wounds were similar to previous victims. But again, no fucking evidence to connect Eiler to it. But the police do get a break uh, six months later on August 21st. Uh, This janitor was out walking his dog, and the dog led him over to Eiler's trash, And the police were alerted of this, and apparently the bags contained the remains of 15-year-old Danny Bridges, who was a street hustler who Eiler dismembered and neatly disposed of in his trash. This makes me question if he was just sloppy this one time, or if he was doing this on a regular basis and just now got caught about it. Yeah. But like, that's insane. Yeah, that's that's a good point. Especially knowing the police are, like, hot on your heels at this point. It seems like a really stupid move. Or he thought it was safer to dispose of the body outside of his house rather than travel with it because the police were on his ass all the time. I don't know, maybe he could have been like, maybe I won't kill right now, but I guess that wasn't an option. Yeah, but you know when police, like, tra- like hunt people down and they're, like, waiting to get their DNA and shit? Like, I think that's so funny. Like, they, like, stalk these people trying to get them to, like, fuck up and, like, leave DNA somewhere. But, like, this guy's just like, nah, I'm gonna eat this body into the trash. No disrespect to the homie. But, um... That's just crazy that, like, his neighbor's dog's like, I'm snitching, motherfucker. (laughs) (laughs) Much respect to the janitor's pooch. 
Oh, yeah. Okay. So Danny was a carbon copy of the Derek Hansen case and convicted of the Bridges slang on July 9th, 1986. Eiler was sentenced to die. But by the that time, Mother Nature had turned against him and he was diagnosed with the HIV, HIV. And his days were becoming numbered. So in November 1990, bargaining saved his life from execution. He agreed to help the Indiana authorities solve a number of his crimes if they were to intervene and get him off of death row. So he goes on to confess that the Agin torture slings and then surprised investigators by naming an alleged accomplice, 53-year-old Robert David Little, who was actually the chairman of the Department of Library Science at the Indiana State University. So according to Eiler, he would snap photos and masturbate while Larry would disembowel his victims. Eiler claimed that that was the rent he paid Little to have a place to stay. And it was Little's idea to play a scene, picking up young men, torturing them, and then killing them. And Little was charged then with the murder of Stephen Agin. Okay, so I'm, I want to back up a little to the, the HIV diagnosis. And I'm not trying to be morose or dark or anything, but some of you will be old enough to remember what it was like to get diagnosed with HIV back in the 90s. And... Basically, that was a death sentence in and of itself, and dying of complications due to due to AIDS was probably far worse than anything like the state was going to do to him. So I wonder why he fought so much for getting the death sentence off the table when he essentially had a death sentence already, and one that was a lot more painful and undignified than a electrocution or lethal injection or whatever they did in Indiana back then. Also, just throwing it out there, I was just randomly thinking about it. I wonder if he passed that to his boyfriend. Oh. I was just thinking about it, and I was like, oh, shit, like, this is a married man. Like, I don't know if they're still hooking up at this point, because, like, I kind of only read about the boyfriend, like, for that little part, like, when they were actually together. I don't know how long they stayed together. I couldn't find it anywhere, but... That would be fucked. Yeah, especially if that guy is still having sex with his wife, presumably unprotected, and then passed it on to her as well. That'd be super sad. Not cute, not cute. Not at all. So based on his conviction, um, Eiler received a 60-year prison sentence. Eiler testified at Little's trial, but they lacked any physical evidence. All they really had was Eiler's testimony, Um, So Little was eventually acquitted on April 17th of 91, and he was reinstated to his prior position at Indiana State, where he stayed until 1997. Tried to find more about this guy, but he kind of fell off the map. I don't know if he's still alive or what he did with the rest of his life, but he seemed pretty unaffected by this. So what do you think about this accomplice thing? I am questioning if an accomplice was actually a thing. Like, I don't know if he had beef with this guy, but, like, why would you randomly bring up this random guy that works in a college and has his life together? But at the same time, like, a lot of guys like that do have those secret lives and shit, so maybe it is a possibility that he helped him out or at least, like, watched and, like, got off to it without getting his hands dirty. 
but yeah, like, I don't think what, we'll ever know. Well, what would be Eiler's motivation to lie about this guy? Because it's not like he fingers him for all of the murders. It's only yeah. like four. It's like four of the murders that he claims he had an accomplice to. Like, why only four? It's not like this was helping Eiler out in any way. So I guess I just don't understand. Like you said, maybe he had, he had beef with this guy. Maybe he pissed him off and wanted to get revenge. But I can't really see any other motivation for him to lie about it. But this guy keeps his nose clean. Like he had a clean record prior to this accusation. And he lived a completely functional life after the accusation. So... I was going to say so did Ted Bundy before that, but <laughs> we <laughs> I all know how that ended. I guess touche. But could could have could Bundy have stopped or anyone else have stopped after they started a thing like this? You know what I, I mean? I don't know. I mean, what's his, what's his name? Was it the Golden State Killer? Like, didn't even yeah. get caught until, like, recently and had a whole ass life. And, like, his neighbors were like, oh, my God, I would have never suspected. So, like... I don't know. I feel like it's possible for them. They'll be like, huh? That guy fucking died of the hiv and he got busted for everything. So I'm scot free. Yeah, that's true with uh, Dennis Rader, the BTK killer. He took like a huge break between his crimes, too. So I guess you make a valid point. Yeah, I mean, so did Chikatilo. Like, mm -hmm. I mean, he, like, what, stopped for, like, a few, like, a year or two before it was like, he yeah, ended it was up like two or three years between his first murder and the next. Yeah, I mean, it's not an impossible theory that he could... I mean, it would possibly explain those four bodies being dumped at one spot, if you want to, like, mm. think about it. That's true. I mean, the an, another dude could have helped him, and that explains how they got four people. Or maybe they did it in twos and be like, oh, like, whatever. I mean, we'll never know, but I don't think it's impossible. Yeah, well, only one guy got convicted for all this at the end of the day, so. And let me tell you about it. Tell, tell us. <laughs> so back in Illinois, Eiler offered to clear 20 murders in exchange for um, commutation of his sentence to life imprisonment. But the state authorities refused and he died of AIDS on March 6, 1994, after confessing to only 21 murders to his attorney. And then said that four of them were committed with an accomplice who remains at large. He could still be out there. Or he's old and wrinkly and he's gone. <laughs> hide your kids, hide your wife. Stop. <laughs> <laughs> so there you have it. That's the story of Larry Eiler, the interstate killer. We hope you enjoyed and please join us next time as we explore the case of Belle Gunness. Thank you for listening, and be sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter for extra content, episode announcements, and more. A special thank you to Zip Scribs for our gorgeous cover art. Make sure to hop over to his Instagram and show him some love. Shout out to Brent Allman for our kick-ass musical score, and to Steven Sweetie, our patient and talented editor. And that's it for tonight, folks. Until next time, remember to keep it creepy.